Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The FT. Hello, and welcome to our second FT Science Show. This week we have a packed podcast from stem cells to the flu pandemic. And from Washington, a report on how future food security is threatened by rising carbon dioxide levels. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. Before we go on, I'd like to introduce you to our guest in the studio, Diana Garnham. Diana is Chief Executive of Britain's Science Council. Hello, Diana, and thanks for coming in today. Good morning. Perhaps you could start by telling us a bit about your role and what perspective it gives you on the world of science. Right, the Science Council is partly an umbrella organisation of UK learned societies and professional bodies in science. So that's in organisations like the Institute of Physics, Biology, but also professional-led organisations like soil scientists, food scientists, um, nuclear physicists. The other part of our work is the introduction in 2004 of Chartered Scientists. My role in that is to champion the highest standards of professional science and the delivery of science. Thanks, Diana. Well, before we go any further, I'd like to introduce the other person in the studio, who's Andrew Jack, the FT Pharmaceuticals Correspondent, just back from a visit to the World Health Organization in Geneva. How, how was that trip? Yeah, I was in Geneva for several days, just in the build-up to this week's World Health Assembly, which is the annual gathering of health ministers, public officials, non-governmental organisations. So lots of very interesting and varied concerns about public health, about infectious and non-infectious diseases. Thanks. Well, we'll talk more about that later. But first, I'd like to talk about stem cells, because last week I was at the World Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine Conference here in London, and the meeting covered the whole bewildering array of stem cells, from the most controversial, the human embryonic stem cells, to cells from various adult sources. The race to get a treatment based on human embryonic stem cells into patients is turning out to be a neck-and-neck affair between Geron in California and Advanced Cell Technology, or ACT. Geron has a treatment for spinal injury, ACT a treatment for blindness. And I asked Bill Caldwell, CEO of ACT, why they were using these controversial cells. Basically... They are the the first cell that is developed that then can be changed or differentiated into all the other types of cells in the human body. And the other thing that's that's interesting about that cell, it's what they call the immortal cell. So it replicates itself indefinitely. And that is something that's unique to the human condition. Uh, That's why it's at the very earliest stage and the most vibrant of all the cells. Diana, what do you think are the prospects for human embryonic stem cells and therapies based on them? The danger for me, I think, is that sometimes the hype in the press and the conferences and the researchers make this seem like a very quick development for the for patients. And actually, I think the reality is it is always long in all diseases, anything in a new direction. 
what involvement I've had with patient groups shows that people do understand that it's actually teaching them a lot about what their condition is as they do the research. So we're learning more, even if the therapy isn't there. And I think for the spinal injury, there is a danger of false hope. But there's also a feeling that each experiment and each step they take shows them the greater likelihood of repairing spinal cord injury, even if the first therapy doesn't work. So I think people understand it as a journey. Let's hear now from another company in the stem cell field. An alternative to embryonic stem cells is a technology called induced pluripotent stem cells. And I asked Bob Palais, who's chief executive of Cellular Dynamics, a leading IPSC company, to explain in more detail. What, what we do is we start with the iPS cells and we use them to manufacture human heart cells. But what that means is I can take a blood draw from anybody and make unlimited numbers of their heart cells in a manufacturing process outside of their body. Now, I know that sounds like science fiction, but it's science fact today. Eventually, we think everybody will have their own stem cell line that will grow out your different cells, liver, heart, and nerve, and before they prescribe a drug, your doctor will test that. We'll send it out to a lab to test that drug on your cells to see if it's going to work and to see if it's going to be safe. And finally, to remind us that stem cells can be used for cosmetic or aesthetic purposes as well as to treat serious disease, I asked Gail Norton, chief executive of Histogen, to tell us more. What we're actually doing is stimulating stem cells in two areas of the scalp. The stem cells that are part of your hair follicle, that's called the dermal papilla, and stimulating those stem cells creates more hair per follicle and thicker hair per follicle. We're also looking to stimulate stem cells that are not follicle-related to make brand-new hair follicles. Our other product for anti-aging actually includes a whole series of growth factors and uh, soluble uh, extracellular matrix proteins that are topically applied. And these materials are known to stimulate stem cells within your own skin to go and help rejuvenate. Andrew, let's move on to your WHO visit. Uh, Tell us who you met and what they were talking about. Well, one of the big issues, of course, that still continues to dominate about a year after we saw the first outbreak of the current swine flu pandemic in Mexico is that big debate about whether the pandemic's over, what's its impact been, and a certain degree of questioning as well about whether a lot of the officials a year ago cried wolf and the world geared up too far, spent too much for what turned out to be a relatively mild pandemic. Um, And then the other interesting thing, I think, in this week-long World Health Assembly debating a whole range of public health issues is the emerging, intensifying discussion around non communicable diseases. Uh, So particularly thinking about the impact of diabetes, of cancer, of heart disease, all of those other sort of areas that particularly in the developing world were somewhat neglected in the past. The focus there so much in terms of public health debate was on HIV, on malaria and TB. Diana, do you think that the pandemic in retrospect a year later was well handled? I don't want to comment particularly on that, but I think that the pandemic and how it was handled brings into question the whole issue about modelling. And I think that we see that with the volcanic ash cloud as well, is how good is the modelling, climate change, all of these areas where you have 
different sections of the scientific community sort of dominating the debate in a particular way and they cry sort of huge danger and then nobody comes in and says well actually we need to remodel this to balance it with some other information and so I understand with the the volcanic ash cloud that the modeling we'll be using is 30 to 50 years old it 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 seems to me that we need to find better ways of amassing all the different information that we have available about pandemics and various other issues the globe has to deal with and actually remodel those and to sit down and think have a better way of combining the information. There's clearly a big debate around, as it were, the scientific analysis of uh, looking at the impact, modelling, um, in this case with flu, but equally with uh, volcanic ash and so on. Another aspect, how society more generally deals with uncertainty. Diana, do you think that scientists should have been more vocal in speaking up about the inadequacies of modelling? I think we have to find a way of bringing the different types of scientists together to have a much more rational discussion instead of allowing them to dominate the debate in various factions. It seems to me if we started from the point of view of how the public views this and how the public views the way science presents the risks to them, then we actually, in the science community, would say, well, we do need to do it differently. I can draw your attention to a fantastic piece of work that the Wellcome Trust did, I think, with Channel 4, which was a computer game called Sneeze, which showed people how disease spreads, how a, a flu spread, and it was actually gamed young children. Now, I think once young people understand, or the general population understands how things actually happen, they can be engaged in a better dialogue with the scientists and ask them for the right information to enable them to manage the risk. It strikes me the other thing is that uh, some people perhaps looked at this volcanic ash outbreak and said, well, this is the fault of the scientists and these old-fashioned approaches to modelling. Actually, probably, ironically, the point is this was old science which hadn't been re-examined enough and perhaps the case is really to integrate scientists much more into a continuing process of review to update these models. Can I come in on that? Because I actually think the businesses involved in the airline industries actually needed to be making a greater demand on the science community to stay on top of the issue. So it's a two-way dialogue that wasn't happening. So one of the reasons the science gets behind is that nobody is keeping it in the public eye or in the on the business agenda to drive that research and to say, actually, it is important to keep on top of it. Thanks very much. That's a fascinating discussion, but I think I should probably bring it back briefly to the WHO because, Andrew, you did some other interviews and listeners can hear them online, can't they? Yes, they can. That's right. I talked to Dr. Ala Alwan, who's the most senior member of the World Health Organization dealing with non-communicable diseases. But I also talked to uh, a leading uh, individual from uh, representing the infectious diseases, because one thing that was striking this year was that, to me was that actually HIV, TB, malaria were not really on the agenda. And this is at a time when, of course, there's a huge funding crunch, which is raising increasing concerns of access to existing medicines after three or four years in which there's been extraordinary progress in bringing affordable treatments and prevention techniques for those big killer diseases. So you can hear the two World Health Organization official interviews and that of Michelle Kazachkin, head of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB and Malaria, talking online. And now to Science Magazine and AAAS in Washington. Over to you, Robert. Thanks, Clive. This week, higher carbon dioxide levels limit many plants' ability to grow. Now, that sounds counterintuitive because plants breathe carbon dioxide. So the more carbon dioxide there is in the atmosphere, the more photosynthesis, and so the more plant growth. 
But if a plant is exposed long-term to higher CO2 levels, then the initial growth spurt stops. In a paper in the May 14th issue of Science, Arnold Bloom and colleagues report what they think is the reason why that growth stops. Bloom is a plant physiologist from the University of California, Davis. In part, the stimulation doesn't persist because plants become unable to take nitrogen from the soil in the form of nitrate and convert it into organic compounds such as proteins. And so that under long exposures to rising CO2 levels, they become nitrogen-starved. Nitrogen-starved plants can't make as many proteins, meaning they're not as nutritious. We have studies underway showing that it's true in about 20 different species. So this affects most of our major crops. At least in temperate regions, such as the United States and Europe, where the major source of nitrogen available to plants is in the form of nitrate. What's happening is that with more carbon dioxide in the air, or lower amounts of oxygen, plants do less photorespiration. Which means less nitrate assimilation. Noelle Holbrook is a plant physiologist at Harvard University. The net outcome of photorespiration, as we have understood it, is the dissipation of some of the energy captured by light and the release of carbon dioxide. So you can think of photosynthesis as building things up and photorespiration to some extent tearing things down. So any photorespiration would seem to be wasteful in the overall productivity of the plant. Again, Arnold Bloom. In fact, there's been major efforts by major companies, which will remain unnamed, to try to eliminate photorespiration. These efforts have been unsuccessful, and our paper shows why. That, in fact, photorespiration is not wasteful, and that when you try to minimize it, you do other damage. In other words, plant photorespiration is coupled to nitrate assimilation. Again, Noel Holbrook of Harvard University. And the second half of the paper lays out a couple of ways in which the mechanisms by which that coupling might occur. That itself is not worked out, but the evidence that they are related is what really is important in the paper, and that moves us in the direction of a mechanistic understanding of what we refer to as acclimation, CO2 acclimation. And because carbon dioxide levels are rising, the carbon dioxide levels predicted in the next 20 to 50 years, Bloom says, can cause a 10 to 20 percent decline in the amount of protein in the leaves and the rest of the plant body because of this phenomenon. In fact, the wheat grain that has been exposed to the conditions that we expect in the next few decades declines about 20 percent. And that could mean a real problem for future food security. For Science Magazine, I'm Robert Frederick. You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. Back to you, Clive. Thanks very much, Robert, and thanks to AAAS and Science. Scientists are valiantly trying to reduce the uncertainties about what will happen with rising CO2 levels, but that really does illustrate what we were talking about earlier. And there's another illustration this week in the so-called Interphone study, where... $20 million-plus was spent on a vast study to see whether mobile phones cause brain cancer, and the results were, to put it kindly, inconclusive. Is there any prospect, do you think, that science will be able to cope better with uncertainty and telling the public how to view uncertainty and risk? I think science is fascinated by uncertainty, and it's actually the search for certainty that will carry on um, driving the research and the scientists. But what's important is how the public deals with and is encouraged to accept a range of different outcomes from research and to learn to make their own judgments. And that's about communicating the outcome of research instead of a win-lose or a right or wrong answer in terms of the information that it gives them to help them inform the choices they make. And I think what's interesting looking at this piece of research is 
what was their impact on the individual? You know, we have a lot of discussion about impact in the UK about research. I think we need to present research outcomes so that we're telling the public, well, this means that you could, for example, start logging the number of hours you use a mobile phone. And the industry could be better at telling us what the radiation output is of its phones. Andrew, what do you think? Yes, I think the industry needs to do more. Although I think in this case with Interphone, what we're striking also is there's, there's a responsibility also from some of the lobbies, the non-profit groups, um, which were quite aggressive and some might say irresponsible in selective interpretation. One can understand a frustration from the public because this is a rather complex and nuanced study. Um, and one, more, one ought to say, you know, after so many years, surely we can start to come up with some rather more definitive results but in the absence of that the media have a responsibility but so do all of those with vested interests whether against uh, or in favour of mobile phones. I think the public needs to start to learn to ask the question of the NGOs and the campaigning groups how well qualified are you to actually comment on this research because it seems to me that quite a lot of those organisations are not informed by up-to-date professional scientific opinion and they are very much campaigning groups using the word science as if it gives them some authority. Thanks Diana. I think we'll be carrying on discussion of this sort in future FT Science podcasts but I'm afraid that's all we have time for now. Next week we'll be talking about a research story that will I promise you be really exciting but I can't breathe a word about it now. So Diana and Andrew thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.